Hello, everybody. Welcome to the London School of Economics International Inequalities Institute. Welcome to LSE Public Events. Thank you all for being here. I am Alpa Shah, an Associate Professor of Anthropology here at the LSE and also convener of one of the III research themes, Global Economies of Care. It's an honor to chair this LSE event, for we're gathered here today to celebrate and discuss Professor Mike Savage's The Return of Inequality, Social Change and the Weight of the Past, just hot off the Harvard University Press. Here it is. Congratulations, Mike. Mike Savage is Martin White Professor of Sociology here at the London School of Economics. He was also director of the LSE International Inequalities Institute from 2015 to last year, an institute which he played a leading role in establishing along with the late Professor John Hills as a genuinely interdisciplinary space to examine inequalities and also consider what is to be done. Mike's academic contributions have made him one of the leading figures reviving the sociology of class in recent decades. His last book, drawing on his work with the BBC Great British Class Survey, was the best-selling social class in the 21st century. Mike is also author of numerous other books and, of course, articles. I'll mention just two here, Globalization and Belonging and the Dynamics of Working Class Politics, both looking in different ways at the configuration of class in Britain. In The Return of Inequality, no doubt influenced by his leading role at the International Inequalities Institute, Mike charts a wider canvas beyond an empirical focus on the UK, shaking the disciplines of economics and sociology to tackle how we think about rising inequality globally. The book not only pushes back against mainstream economics to, who say we need not, who, who say we don't need to worry about inequality, but it also tackles some of the shortfalls in recent books that have signaled the importance of inequality, many written by economists, not only, uh, and it does so to chart new agendas. At the same time, Mike shakes up his home discipline, sociology, in a call to action to take up grand narratives. It is indeed a grand book and discussing it is no small task. So I'm delighted to have with us today two wonderful panelists who have contributed much to research and thinking on inequalities. Let me introduce them. Gurminda Bamra, Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies in the School of Global Studies, University of Sussex. Gurminda is author of Connected Sociologies and Rethinking Modernity, Postcolonialism and the Sociological Imagination, and co-editor of Decolonizing the University. Gunrinda, you've been at a number of LSE events recently, the annual British Journal of Sociology lecture, the III D Thomas Piketty's uh, discussion you know, of capital and ideology, and also the III Atlantic Fellows inaugural annual lecture, which you mm -hmm. gave. So we're really grateful to you for returning to us yet again for this event. Welcome, Gurminda. We also have with us Patrick Legale, a CNRS research professor of sociology and politics at Sciences Po in Paris, Center for European Studies and Comparative Politics and founding dean of the Sciences Po Urban School. 
Patrick is the author of more than 14 books or edited volumes on a range of themes that broadly deal with comparative public policy, urban sociology, political economy in large metropolitan metropolitan European cities, and economic sociology and political economy, in particular the making of a market society and the sociology of Europe. Patrick is joining us today from Paris. Welcome, Patrick. I will chair a conversation with Mike Gominda and Patrick to draw out some of the key issues raised in the return of inequality. We hope to discuss for no more than an hour on the panel, and then we will open up to questions from the audience for half an hour. So please feel free to raise your questions anytime using the Q&A function on Zoom or in the chat, um, but we will look at them towards the end of the session. So Mike, uh, let's turn to you first. Let me um, start with a very basic question. You know, we've had a number of big books tackling inequality in recent years, not least Thomas Piketty's Capitalism in the 21st Century, the follow-on book Capital and Ideology, Joseph Stiglitz's the Price of Inequality, Branko Milankovic's, you know, Global Inequality, Danny Dorling, Inequality in the 1%. There's been Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson's The Spirit Level before. I mean, there's just to name a few. So why then the need for a new book on inequality? Tell us, tell us why you wrote The Return of Inequality. Well, thank you, Alpa, uh, for that introduction and chairing this session. Yeah, I mean, so you're absolutely right. That, Inequality has become one of these words which everyone talks about, you know, and you can't go anywhere um, in the world these days without seeing stories about inequality hit us all the time. Um, and it's, this has been really striking, isn't it, with the COVID uh, crisis, how inequality in terms of how it's differentially affecting uh, different ethnic and racial groups, uh, different classes, different parts of the world has really become endemic. But I, so I, I felt Particularly, I mean, you mentioned the book I wrote on the Great British Class Survey, which came out in 2015. Um, and that was, that was a book about Britain and about sense of social class, looking at other issues too. But I did want to think, well, how do we as sociologists rise to this challenge of thinking about inequality on a bigger scale? So I began it, I have to say, without a clear sense about what I would try and push, other than to say, I think I thought... The idea that we have moved to a world in which inequality is a defining challenge of the time was something which sociologists had to, had to talk about. Uh, and so I began it with a sense of this is a really important conversation for sociologists to be part of. Um, I wasn't exactly sure how I would take it, but really I was always intrigued by this um, idea that we all know about the significance of the climate crisis, sustainability. Um, and inequality figures in a kind of debate around the issue of sustainability. But I wanted to try and pull through the significance of inequality from a sociological perspective to understand how it compared with climate change issues and how it tells us about the state of the world. If I could, so if I could just say three or four words about um, kind of what I try and do in the book. So it, part of the book is a stock taking. It is to try and say, let's understand on the basis of reviewing some of the work by economists, but also by historians, by geographers, political scientists, as well as sociologists, what is that exactly is at stake 
around the issue of inequality. And the big issue I wanted to try and tackle was comparing the dystopian view. So there's, a, there's a dystopian view, which I associated with Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century, which where he talks about this fundamental law of capitalism, that inequality will increase as the economy grows. So it's a, that is a very dystopian view about, uh, you know, we may, we may think we move to advanced industrial, post-industrial economy, but actually that will bring about um, greater inequality. And I, I found that as a sociologist, and as a sociologist, quite attracted to pessimistic views in a way, <laughs> quite, a, quite an important issue to, to argue with. But as, as the debate has moved on from 2014, there's also the argument that inequality is an issue, but it's a containable one. It's kind of one which, you know, it varies in different parts of the world. So the US case is very dystopian. We know, we know about the US. Uh, but other parts of the world have a more optimistic story to tell. We've seen global poverty rates. I mean, there's obviously crucial issues about definition, but they seem to have fallen in many parts of the world. So how do we you know, steer a course between this very dystopian view about inequality and then the kind of more, uh, the more, um, pragmatic view that it's a manageable issue and we shouldn't go over we shouldn't go overboard about inequality being say as serious as climate change and then the other issue which I try and bring to the table and this really is I think really important in terms of me coming as a sociologist is how we link the distributional stories of economists which are kind of measuring income and wealth inequalities you know using highly uh, you know advanced technical measurement tools with a perspective which sociologists and indeed anthropologists uh, have been more interested around how we think about categorical inequalities, group inequalities, mm-hmm. race, gender, class. Um, and obviously in the last few years, we've seen a huge uh, and quite understandable and, and extremely important mobilisation about issues of, um, of, those, of, of racism, sexism, Me Too, Black Lives Matter. What I don't think we have is a story about how that links into the story about what the economists about inequality shift. So what I try and do in the book is, is try and find a way of synthesizing what's happening around categorical inequalities and what it, and how we link that to a story which the economists have developed. So it's a very ambitious book. Um, but you know, I, I hope it will begin a conversation which makes us realize and makes us think about the fact that inequality is not an issue, which is just a, a kind of a topic which can be Taken or, le- taken or left. It is actually really fundamental to thinking about where we are in the world today. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for that very kind of comprehensive um, response to what you're trying to do. Uh, I mean, in a way, you know, as I was reading the book, I was just thinking those who have been screwed over for centuries have always seen inequality as being really important. So what you seem to be, to me, to be doing is highlighting this recent interest by economists in particular in seeking to develop a narrative around inequality. So that's an interest away from poverty and towards an inequality paradigm. So would it be fair to say then that your book is also a kind of sociology of this interest in the inequality narrative paradigm as it emerges from economics progressive economists and their think tanks and their policy influences 
Um, and what it does is show also the shortfalls in these analyses of inequality, what sociology can then bring to the table in the analysis of inequality, and at the same time, you know, providing a call to action uh, for sociologists to take up that space of grand narr narratives that has been set by people like Thomas Piketty, by setting an example yourself, would it be fair to, you know, think think about your book in, in, in this way? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, well, thank you. So absolutely. I mean, um, one of the interesting things which uh, has, you know, has preoccupied me and, and figures in the book is elites are very interested in inequality. As you say, you know, on the whole, in the past, elites haven't been. Elites have tried to deny inequality is a big issue and let's just carry on. Um, you know, ruling society in the way we always have done. And as you say, the protests and the, uh, the, the back against inequality like, has come from below. We are in this very strange time politically now, politically now though, where the rise of inequality um, in many parts of the world in recent years has not seen significant gains by the, by the socialist left. You know, in many parts of Europe, many parts of the world, the left has not done well electorally. You might have thought they should have done, uh, and indeed, you know, I, I would have liked them to have done better. But the, the story is of the success of populism, of uh, of the political right. So that's an interesting issue too. But also, um, and this is an issue which actually first preoccupied me or first interested me with the Great British Class Survey in 2015. So we did this big BBC web survey asking people about social class in Britain, where they where they thought they fitted, how much social capital you have, etc. And the really interesting thing, one of the interesting things was, and because this is a web survey, anyone could do it. There was no controls over the kind of people who did this survey, was that the wealthier you were, the more you were interested in class. So there's this very sort of strange inverse relationship that people who are on the bottom of the class structure didn't engage with the BBC class survey. We had to send out ethnographers to try and investigate that. But if you were super wealthy, if you're chief executives uh, and so on, you got really interested in class. And this, is, this sort of paradox has been following me through um, as I've been writing the book. And I've seen lots of examples of it. So, you know, if you, if you look at what the World Economic Forum and Davos, I mean, they, they talk about inequality a lot. They see it as one of the major global risks which the world faces. So what is going on when elites talk about uh, inequality? But actually, although inequality is deeply marked in the lives of um, you know, people who are suffering racism and sexism and Class inequality. Nonetheless, the political out, the political, um, the, pol the political mobilisation they're leading, don't necessarily tackle that head on. So I think we're in very strange times politically, uh, and I do try and uh, make sense of that. And as you say, then there's a, then the, there is a debate with the, with economics, which is really important. And this is probably the most original part of my book in a way, because until I began working there, I really knew very little economics. I sort of, that was a kind of black box, you know, economics. And we didn't like economics, so we sat with sociologists. But actually, because economists like Piketty in particular made it very clear that they wanted to be part of a bigger dialogue and they didn't just want to write technical economics, then I think the, the opportunity was there for sociologists to think about, okay, how do we engage with this kind of work? How do we think about economics and the tools it offers us as a way of developing a wider conversation about the seriousness of, any, of inequality. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, uh, just a follow-on question from that. I mean, obviously, you know, you were writing this at the same time as you were directing the Inequalities Institute 
And could you maybe tell us something about what you learned in this process about interdisciplinary dialogues and how this impacted on, you know, how you set about writing, writing this book? <laughs> well, I could try. I mean, it's hard. It's extremely hard. And I think we also have to recognise it's, it's an issue of interdisciplinarity, which is hard enough, but disciplines are also themselves unequal. And so economics, of course, is far more powerful discipline than sociology is. And they are writing from a position of privilege, which, uh, which anthropologists and sociologists don't really have. And so in a way, getting that conversation going is really hard. And, um, I ha and at times, uh, I have felt as a kind of you default back to your home turf. Um, but I've then also been encouraged by the fact that if you take an issue like inequality, which has this huge political and moral concern, then that gives a hook to make sure that the conversation doesn't get lost. So it's, it is an optimistic, uh, I think, story, but it's, I have to say you have to keep on it because it's a really interesting comment. And, and, and part of my book is about social science and how social science has not always grasped the urgency of inequality because we have fallen back on our you know, disciplinary paradigms, our disciplinary canons, and we need to do better. You know, we need to really think about working together. Thanks, Mike. I have a line before I turn to our panellists. I mean, theoretically, one of the most important points you make in the book is that history matters. Indeed, you call the book The Return of Inequality, Social Change and the Weight of the Past. Mm -hmm. What is this, the weight of the past? Can you explain yeah. to our <laughs> audience? Yes, I mean, because at one level, it sounds fairly obvious, doesn't it? We all know past matters. We all know that, you know, History is significant. So that isn't the great insight at one level. Um, it came, that idea came out of a, a, this um, reading Piketty's Capital 21st Century, because at various points in that book, and these are asides, but at various points he keeps saying, oh, you know, it's, it's just looking at the way that wealthy people operate in contemporary capitalism, it's a bit like how it was in the Victorian times. Here's what Balzac says about French bourgeoisie in 1860s. Oh, it's just like what's going on today. And I found that a really, I mean, he, he, he used that as an aside, but I found that a very kind of provocative and interesting observation to, to push on. And really, uh, what I try and do in the book is to really use that insight to puncture our progressive view about we will be saved by technology, we will be saved by economic progress, uh, now that that's you know, that modernist accelerationist um, to use that phrase idea is really strong with us we keep saying let's give us a new policy fix let's you know we'll find something which fixes this uh, but really if you if you push on this idea that uh history matters then in a way you you have to recognize too that we are part of this long-term historical continuum and we are dealing with these deep um historical forces and of course, that has become massively more apparent in the recent years. I mean, think about the significance of slavery, which uh, anti-racist Black Lives Matter protesters have brought to the surface, or the notion of historic sex abuse, uh, the significance of empire. So it really gets us to think, I think, in challenging terms about the past isn't just a background. It's not just a kind of residue. It's not just a relic, which we have to come to terms with. It is actually active. It's actually a force which is present in the here and now. And the way I push that argument forward, which makes it a bit more concrete, is to, is to, to bring out the significance of wealth, 
capital and assets, if you like. So this is kind of, this, this feeds into economics, through the way economists talk about capital, but also has a link back to Marxist theory, of course, as well as post-colonial arguments about the extractive force of empire. Um, if we think about wealth as the fundamental uh, axis of inequality, it gets us to think about time in a different way, because uh, if you think about inequality in terms of how much money you're earning or your social class position, you're being characterised on the here and now, how you are at a particular moment in time. When you think about issues of wealth, debt, accumulation, by contrast, you are putting yourself in a much longer historical continuum. And you, and, and, and we all know this, you know, if we have a mortgage or a credit card debt or a student debt, we all know that the past is actually part of our life. You know, we carry it in our shoulder. Obviously, anthropologists have written about this very um, evocatively. So, and that's the kind of insight which makes us realize that dealing with inequality isn't about something which we can just tackle with a few policy things. It means dealing with the past and recognizing we have to challenge wealth as, and the buildup of wealth as a fundamental issue, which is going to uh, stop us adequately challenging inequality unless we really make a serious political effort. Hope that helps. Thanks so much, Mike. Yeah, I, I, I would like to turn to our panel now uh, and um, perhaps uh, first to somebody who has thought a great deal about the past uh, in terms of empire and race and the nation state. And um, uh, and, and I'm going to hand over to, to Gurminda, Gurminda Bambra to, to comment on, on Mike's book. Gurminda, I'll give you however long you'd like, you know, five or ten minutes and 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 then and 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 uh, and uh, it'll be great to hear what you have to say and and then uh, and then after you to to Patrick Legale. Okay. okay, over to you, Gominda. Great, thanks so much, and thanks so much for inviting me to participate in this discussion on Mike's new book. I mean, I would have read it anyway, and it's great to have this opportunity not only to force you know to read it, but then also to discuss it. And I think that the book really addresses a number of sort of urgent themes, and it makes a powerful argument for how we can and how we must mobilize the social sciences collectively. That is, as you've mentioned already, you know, to go beyond their disciplinary silos. And, and this needs to be done to account for and resolve the inequalities that disfigure our world. So it's a argument for how we need to do social science differently, but it's an argument for how to do social science differently to make it matter more in the world and address the themes, you know, the key theme of inequality that that's being highlighted. And I think that the conversation that you just ended up having around the sort of role of the past is really important because recognizing the role of the past in determining contemporary inequalities is really what I think sets Mike's book apart from the other works in the field that you were mentioning earlier in the introduction and Mike nonetheless engages with these other works but I think there's something different going on here and in part it's this idea that you know, for Mike, despite modernity's wager with humanity for a brighter future, we're rather left with, and here I'm quoting his words, we're left with a world littered by centuries of accumulated economic, social and cultural debris. And this debris, he suggests, has an increasing hold on our present and our future. And if we don't make sense of it, then it will always both tie us to the past that we thought we'd moved away from. But also, and I think this is one of the anxieties motivating the book, is that 
It's a concern that we're returning to the inequalities of the pre-modern world that modernity had alleviated. But here I'd sort of uh, link into what Alpa has just said, because the question is really for whom did modernity, and especially the imperial modernity that, that you talk about, Mike, for whom did it alleviate inequality? And as Alpa has already noted, you know, many places have continued to be marked by inequality during the period in which it decreased in Europe and the West. So just in my brief comments, I want to pick up on Mike's call for us to take seriously the way in which historical legacies continue to have an impact on contemporary inequalities. And as I've been arguing in my various contributions to events held at the LSE, one of the things that I'll sort of suggest strongly is that global inequalities can't be adequately captured in cross-national analyses or analyses on within country or between country differences. Now, whilst this is the dominant focus of much work on the topic, such as Milanovic or Piketty, who sort of really think about global inequality as the sum of national inequalities, what Mike does differently within this book is that he argues, and again, I quote, that we need to avoid comparing nations as if they were analytically equivalent units and to take more seriously broader geopolitical considerations, such as imperial formations. So I just want to say a little bit more about this, because it is important to think about why we might need to think about inequality, not in terms of the nation, but rather in terms of empire and imperial formations. And that's because it was empires and not nations that were the dominant modes of political organisation at the time that the inequalities that continue to mark our world in the present were being established. And so the nation doesn't really come to be the dominant political unit globally until after decolonization. And so in that sense, I would suggest it's more appropriate to think about global inequality in terms of the global regimes that produced it, that is imperialism and colonialism. And one of the reasons why this is important, and it links in with other work that Mike has been doing recently and others interested in the question of inequality, is how do we redress inequality. And if we have our analyses as bound to the nation, then one of the ways in which we think about who should be the legitimate object of public policy for the redress of inequalities will also be those who are conceptualized as belonging to the nation. But if we accept that the imperial past has generated significant inequalities, then we need to consider that past in terms of thinking how we redress inequalities at the global level. I mean, one of the things that I think is increasingly clear is that the accumulation of wealth within Europe that contributes to Europe being one of the wealth, being the wealthiest continent on the planet, is that it's not simply a consequence of things that Europeans did within the continent, but it's a consequence of their depredations across the globe through processes of dispossession, of extraction, colonial taxation. As I argued elsewhere, the British Empire, for example, had modes of taxation that drew resources from colonial subjects into the nation narrowly conceived. However, the deployment of these resources only occurred within the nation, and they didn't include colonial constituencies who had contributed to that sum. And so the inequalities, so if we think about the British Empire as the frame within which to think about inequalities, we see that inequalities are both direct and indirect, and they're both immediate and long term. And the direct inequalities result from the fact that the, the nation within the British Empire 
accumulated additional wealth and resources for its domestic population, including reductions in the domestic tax burden and increased social services available to them. And that was through the import of the taxes of colonial subjects. But they were excluded from any redistribution of that wealth. And so you have an ongoing uh, long-term inequality that's established politically but isn't captured in the categories that economists use for thinking about inequality as occurring within nations and, and so on. And these indirect inequalities also involve then the compounded loss that's suffered by colonized populations, given that the taxes they paid are not spent in the country in which they're raised, but they're exported to support the British national economy. So to put it in anachronistic Keynesian terms, the multiplier has its effect elsewhere, while the extraction depresses activity locally. But this relationship is very rarely addressed within uh, scholarship and research on global inequality. And I guess the key thing that I want to sort of set out is that the imperial and colonial dividend that has been central to the construction of post-war welfare states such as Britain and France, and especially in the period that Piketty calls their tronc glorious, was also responsible for depressing the economic activity of the colonies and soon to be former colonies. And so the end of empire doesn't really bring an end to the legacies of its social structures. And in that sense, I guess what I'm sort of pointing to is this aspect of, you know, that as you, you argue in the book, Mike, that we in the social sciences, we really do need to acknowledge the weight of history and to take seriously these broader considerations and to go beyond the nation in order to reconceptualize the paradigm of inequality. And I guess what I'll just end with is that I think it's so important that histories of colonialism have begun to be acknowledged by European scholars. And what's necessary now is to ask the question of how we account for them within our social scientific conceptualizations. And I think this is something that we're going to pick up later in the panel discussion. So I'll leave it there for now. But it was a, a great book and I was really pleased to have read it. Yeah, thank you so much, Gominda, for these important um, comments. And yeah, I, I, I too want to pick up on on this issue of what you're saying in a way is is not new. You know, it's been said by many people in the past. It's it's about you know the politics of of who we bring to the table when we talk about uh, inequalities. But let's let's get back to that discussion later, Mike. I wanted to ask you: Do you have anything immediate you'd like to say in relation to Gominda's comments? Um, just very quickly, well, well thank you, Gaminda, uh, and thank you for, for, you know, I think capturing what I was trying to do in the book. And I have to be honest, you know, I haven't really thought seriously about empire before, you know, I began, began working on this book. I, you know, clearly I was aware of your work, which, you know, has, has been unpicking our assumptions about modernity being uh, um, premised on nation states. And I think what, what you have shown, and I think what I try and push on in this book is to actually un un decouple those things and bring out the fact that the nation state is quite a fragile and late, and as you say, fraught and politically problematic project in the first place, rather than it being an inherent thing to which modernity was always moving towards, which I think is kind of being the dominant social science repertoire. I mean, if I could just, it's maybe an issue we talk about later, but it's also, I think, quite important in terms of the, what is to be done question, the politics question. Because it, it also, but it also, if we if we re recognise the power of empire and, and the significance, historical significance of empire, but also the way in which they still 
very, very powerful and arguably becoming more powerful. How does that make us see the nation as, uh, even, even with all the problems and all the limitations it has, as some kind of mechanism which tries to develop some kind of public consensus to limit or, you know, control or regulate inequality? You know, you, some people will talk about it in terms of national, national, national social contracts. And I'm not sure about the language, but it gets to the idea that on the whole, you know, nations have been better at dealing with inequality than empires have been. Um, and therefore, do, rather than writing off nationalism as a kind of uh, populist right-wing thing, actually, are there certain kinds of nationalism which do actually allow um, better, if you like, modulation of inequality than is the case in the imperial form? So this is, not a, this is not a view which I was expecting to have at the beginning, I'm going to be honest, writing this book. Because like everybody else, I thought, you know, nationalism is a bad thing. And, but uh, when I get to the conclusion, I thought, well, Pat, I, I, I have this notion of sustainable nationalism. And you can think about the way certain kinds of national uh, identities, you know, in Scotland would be a good case in the, in the British context, perhaps, are actually really significant ways in which you can perhaps try to modulate inequality. So this is a part of a huge conversation, which uh, we can certainly have later, but it goes well beyond this Zoom call. Thank you. Yeah, it, it, definitely huge, huge terrain. And let's come back to some of these issues in our in our in our later panel discussion. Um, but for the moment, I'd like to hand over to Professor Patrick Legale. Over to you, uh, Patrick. Thank you, thank you, Alpa. Thank you, Mike, for inviting me to join this great panel. What an important subject, and what an important book. And can I just start by saying what a formidable book that is one of the most interesting read I've done for a long, long time, because as mentioned, uh, a combination of um, history, historical sociology, cultural sociology, sociology, economics, some anthropology at times, science at times, mobilize you know, with an intellectual project which has a clear coherence, makes a formidable reading, and uh, really let's pay tribute to this uh, formidable uh, achievement. Uh, of course, you needed a French in this panel because, as you know, Tocqueville explained our passion for equality that was not matched historically by our concern for inequality, which is one of the French paradox that is implicit in the book, I would say, at some point. Um, let me point to a couple of points to start the discussion and this conversation, and I see that as a, as a conversation as, as we discussed before. Um, I should also emphasize maybe a little bit is that one of the strengths of the book, which I want to emphasize, is the capacity of the author to deal both with at a macro level of one of the most important trends and giving a master narratives, but also at times to use some more pragmatic sociologists, to use economists to think at the level of individuals also in order to understand the experience of individuals and groups. And this combination, which is always difficult for us, is, is just uh, fascinating and really very impressive. And also, as you said, one of the, I found fascinating in the book is the capacity to mobilize all those different uh, bits of social science and humanities, but also to criticize them. Because in a way, Mike is also developing a very strong critics of economics, because all economics is not Piketty, as we may all know, and also to develop a very vigorous critics of some sociology, but also quite a critics of a lot of little science, not to mention sometimes anthropology and more um, constructivist social science, which sometimes doesn't know what it means to measure. So I think you know, this is the irony of a book, which is mobilizing all these sub-disciplines, 
but also criticizing them. And I think that's a big thing. And last point I want to emphasize to the discussion is really the way to think about inequality that is put forward in a book is really putting forward a question about what does it mean to think about society, not just nation, but more or less society. And that's my the first point I want to, to emphasize. The strength of the book is to think about time, and, and Gominder has made important point already, but also to think about the relations between scales over time. And can I remind our audience that, you know, sometimes you measure evolution, let's say just income or wealth of inequality at one scale, and that may run contrary at another scale. And then again, contrary, you may have some trend at the regional level, at the global level, at the national level and the urban level with contradictory evolution from one level to the next. So the question of scale, which is absolutely central in the book, is really leading to one way to think about inequality. And, and as Gominder said, in Europe, people thought about the reduction of inequality, but they don't care about the other scale beyond the nation state or beyond Europe. So this question of scale, I would argue, is a strength of the book and could even be pushed a little bit further in order to think also both at the way we examine the problem, we represent the problem, we measure, and we develop some, polit some political action. The strength of the book is to sort of really emphasize that the way we have been thinking about inequality and measuring them and representing them was made in the, in the case of, of the state, the nation state model. And in a way, this is something which might have been even reinforced in the book, maybe Mike had some print, which is not just to emphasize the nation element, but the nation state. All the sociology of science has, has told us how much the making of statistics coming from state is about developing categories linked to the modernization of a state. So a lot of the measure and conceptualization, and that's a, a European project, and that's shown very clearly in the book. So in a way, we could think the other way around. If we try to disconnect not just nation from state, which is an important element of what we do now, but also to think about all this measurement and representation and understanding of those issues today, and we go beyond the state, what does it mean to try to represent, to measure, to think, and to act about those inequalities? And already in the book, we have some serious insights about that. I think we could go proper a little bit more. And already what I think is, is very important in the book is the analysis of the representation and measurement of inequality. And that is a very fruitful way to think forward. And that's not just the, the question between empires and states, which has been already alluded to, but you can go beyond. And in a way, one of the striking transformation of this world is also this urbanization process. And we urbanists, we know very well that we have seen a range of massive development of various cities and urban areas connected to each other within or beyond the nation states. And that is transforming. So in a way, one of the big issues of, of inequality nowadays is that if you take into account the mobility element and the connection between various territory, then you have a, a serious issue on how we understand this inequality and how we measure and how we, we think about those relations. And in the book, Mike has a chapter on the cities where he shows the limit of a classic, uh, let's say, modernist views of the city. And he's right, the classic view in terms of just engines is, is, is not enough. But on the other end, we we have this concentration going on together with more and more resources. And in a way, what is interesting is that in a number of cities, 
Thinking about inequality is, of course, income and wealth, but more than that, a key element in a number of cities and urban areas is to think about access to services. That is not measured so obviously, and access to services with certain quality, not just access to education, but an education which gives you some, some support. In a way, I would like to argue that when we think about what can be done, and we go to that at the later stage, uh, what is going on in this world of inequality is also to think that both the experience and the measure are not the same at different scale. And there are a number of issues that are characterized at the global scale. Some are different in different geographical areas, but connected, as Gomendos explained. But if you move at the local of urban scale, then you have different ways to think about the relations, but also different types of inequalities. And I would emphasize this access to services that is uh, absolutely central in, in the issue. And maybe to emphasize these issues of inequality. What is interesting is that, you know, think about within the EU, so you go into but that's what I know best, is uh, you may have at the same time a decrease of inequality at the European level measure in terms of income, including with Eastern Europe, Oriental Europe. But the more you have this element, the more you have increased inequality within each member state and within each city. So as Gominder just uh, mentioned, I think what we have to think, and that's what the book is pointing to in, in, in a very interesting way, is to understand that the development of forms of inequality at one scale or at some given moment in time is connected and explained to some extent what is going on at a different scale or for different groups. And those interconnections are starting to be there in the book. And that's what is difficult for us, is to be able to, to measure and to take into account those elements, including in a world which is more mobile. And I'll just to finish on that for this first round, is really to emphasize that with inequality, we are sort of facing the issue of what do we mean by society? And what do we mean by you know, interdependence? And of course, what we see, and that's already in the book, is that bits of societies still exist as nation state, the national level. But we see that for some people, super rich, for instance, or for migrants, the society is not the national level. It's part of uh, connections, networks, diaspora sometimes. And it's a little bit in a place and a little bit in the mobility and in the relation part. And some people organize their life you know, outside the nation state, they avoid tax or they avoid some of the constraints. And some of the people are becoming more and more local and less mobile than they were before. So we see we have some local societies strengthening. Think about Scotland in the UK regional. And the problem is to think about this inequality, articulating those different scale and articulating modes of representation. That's one of the strengths of the book and mode of relations between those scales. And this is not a given this is the result of political fight and struggles around at which scale and in which relation we consider when we think about inequality. And that's what the book is, is indicating. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Patrick, for these very thoughtful comments. Mike, um, would you like to pick up on anything Patrick has well, said? Um, thank you, Patrick. And I obviously agree. I, 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 um, and just, just to follow in what you're saying, I, I, Let's put this. One of the one of the effects of the significance of the economic work on inequality in the last ten years, and I'm thinking of the tradition of Piketty and the the World Inequality Lab and Milanovic and all that. And it's paradoxical. I don't think it, I don't think they intend to in a way, but it has kind of 
made us think about the nation as if, you know, you can just measure inequality within the nation. This is, of course, the tremendous point, too. And, you know, 20 years ago, everyone was talking about critique of methodological nationalism and flows and mobility. And theoretically, of course, that's, that's only become more significant in the 20 years. But actually, in terms of the measurement tools, we don't, we, we, we are not capturing that in the way that we should be. So absolutely, I do hope that although, um, you know, national level measurement remains important in important ways, but we do need to think about finding ways which go beyond that. And I also think, because um, one of the things I try and do in the book is, is suggest that um, visualizations are powerful measure, powerful tools. And obviously, social science, we, on the whole, we've not given visualizations enough importance, I think. And I think the visualizations are are powerful tools. But actually, one visualization, which I think I, I, I'm, on the, I'm, not, I'm on the fence about, is about mapping. Because we are surrounded by maps of things all the time. Um, you know, COVID, you see maps of infections, you know, broken down by neighborhoods. And at one level, this seems to be, this is what I was getting at when I was talking about that with the way innovations are held out to us as being some sort of positive thing. It's held out to be very progressive and transparent and, wow, we can map things down to the nth degree. But actually, you've got to think about how maps are constructed and how certain ways of, of representing space are deeply political. Um, and bringing out the issues of scale and mobility are important to that. So, yeah, so I, I think those comments are pushing very much in the direction you were suggesting. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. I have a follow-on question from Patrick's thoughtful comments, you know, um, about scale. Uh, and one of my responsibilities I see as a chair is to draw out parts of the book, which are, you know, um, really super important that we haven't talked about. And one of the things that's so beautiful about your book is that you, at the, at the, on the one hand, tackle uh, empire, nation states, and but then you also come back to, you know, the, the fil- lived fifth, um, lived bodily experience, a physical experience of inequality, and you call this, you know, visceral inequality. And I wanted to ask you, can you tell us something more about this visceral inequality? And in, res- in, 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 in response, I mean, thinking about Patrick's comments about how we measure different kind of scales, are there some aspects of inequality that, you know, we simply just can't measure? Uh, and does this have a bearing on how we visualize things because you know you're, you you've just pointed out the importance of the power of visualization and i you're flipping through your book it's it, you know you, your your visuals in there are 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 mainly um graphs right um uh, there's maybe one photo or two photos i don't know apart from yourself uh and and are there certain kinds of um you know what what implications does this have for measurement what implications does this have moving between scale to to the kinds of visuals you know we 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 use so yeah if you could tell us something about all of this moving between scales in re- in relation to your concept of vis- visceral inequality which is to me very interesting Thank you. I mean, lots of lots of issues there. Um, so let me. Yes. So one of the one of the arguments I have in the book is that uh, is to argue against the way in which social scientists often create these little typologies, which then you know hive things off and they say, well, distinguish between X and Y, and that helps us. Whereas in fact, you know, inequality is integrated; it's linked, but we don't necessarily have the language to do that. And so one of my targets, if you like, one of my one of my arguments is to argue against the value of talk of distinguishing between the politics of redistribution and recognition, 
which sets up a kind of divide between economic inequality and identity politics, as sometimes called. And then you get into debates about, um, you know, which is more important, how does identity relate to economic inequality? And um, Piketty's new book, for instance, he has a critique of identitarian politics. I think this is really unproductive, if I'm honest. I think that's ex exactly an example of a social science which is, which is getting in the way of showing how things relate together. And so I try and capture the significance of um, questions about racism and sexism, classism, if you want to use that term, in terms of not, you know, it's a lifestyle issue or identity issue. Yeah, sure, sure it is. But the, that's an effect, I think. The, the identity thing comes out of these other social processes. It's not itself a very helpful term. But what is really striking, I think, and again, it's, this has only become more manifest in the years since I've been writing this book, is just how those experiences of racism, sexism, classism are, are written on the body, and they're, they're bodily experiences. And obviously, the George Floyd killing is, 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 is a uh, central example of that, but only one of many, many other examples. And I, that's what, how I try and render uh, uh, inequality in terms of visceral inequality to, to give us a to give us a, a language to to recognise that without falling into the identity politics, identity uh, concept, which I think is, is leading us in the wrong direction. Um, now, the issue of measurement, the issue of measurement um, is absolutely crucial because it's it, it, it difficult to capture those sort of visceral processes through quantitative you know, measurement mechanisms, asking people surveys or whatever, we, and we know that. And that is why um, some kind of mixed methods from the ethnographic perspectives, recognising how things work at different scales is, I think, absolutely fundamental. So, you know, I am, I am very much a mixed methods um, social scientist. And I, I, I want my, you know, I want this book not just to be seen to be positioned against the, the macroeconomics. So that is crucial. That's part of the story. But it is needs to be part of this bigger dialogue in which these things can, can work together to provide an, an overall story. So that's, that is my, um, that's what I hope, that's what I'm trying to do with, with, with that. Thanks so much, Mike. Yeah, lots more to talk about uh, on this and many other issues. But for, for the last part of, of this panel discussion, I'd like to turn to the very last section of your book, which admirably, you know, you, 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 is titled, What is to be done? Which you take from Lenin. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about the vision that you lay out. And perhaps um, before I before I open up the panel, Mike, you could take just a few minutes to explain to the audience, you know, what, what it is that you're doing in, in the what is to be done section. Um, and then I'll invite Gurmind and Patrick and I, I might throw a few things along the way to into the discussion. Yes, this was a chapter which, I, you know, again, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not a policy person. I'm not someone who, you know, tries to advise political strategies. Um, but I just felt I had to write something like this. You know, it would be, it would be a cop-out not to, not to offer some thoughts about what this means in terms of a political issue. And so part of what I'll try and do in that chapter is to say, well, let's, let's think about this waste of the past argument. You know, what does it mean for politics? And... Just as we've seen you know, the return of empires, the return of elites, the return of kind of um, wealth and equality, inherited wealth and all that, perhaps we should go back to some of the repertoires which were politically powerful in earlier centuries. And that's why I you know, return to kind of the what I call the radical tradition, you know, of, uh, in the British case, Chartism and radical movements in the 18th century, 19th century, because... 
in in a way they are mobilizing conceptions of being critical of elites being critical critical of rents unearned income which i think you know ha- we need to renew that vision you know if it's what if it, if it's and i think i'm i think i finished with this you know the fundamental issue is we've got to deal with wealth and accumulated wealth um which is and uh, which has fallen so much to private hands of, of a relatively few people and that is very much the issue which of course you know radicals throughout history have been tackling in different sorts of ways and we can learn a lot from that and the, what is to be done title is is, a, is an engagement with lenin of course and in the sense of the leninist project because i think there is a subtext in my book which is to say that a renewal of, of marx's interest in conceptions of capital and capitalism is really important but for centuries of course or for well, a, a bit more than a century that has been yoked to a kind of vision of leninist politics about the revolutionary party and the vanguard and of course that vision of politics has been discredited in most parts of the world we we therefore need to rethink the political toolkit which which recognizes the significance of socialist critique which i think my book is signed up to but you know thinks about it in, in different sorts of terms so it's not it, the chapter is an opportunity to think about those things and open up those questions about politics again thanks thanks so much uh, mike yeah um i i i'd like to kick us off maybe uh, in in discussing what you what you have in the what is to be done chapter i mean as i said to you earlier you know one of the real values of your book is that it it charts this rise in the narrative of inequality how scholars think tanks policy are starting to be concerned about it and what the shortfalls of these concerns and concepts are right and how economics can and should be injected with sociology and history how sociology needs to rethink what it's doing learn from what's happening in economics you have these lovely couple of sentences sentences about you know we need to rethink our entire intellectual apparatus you say including how the social sciences operate it's not inequality isn't just this discrete topic of inquiry but requires an entire paradigm shift away um in the way we conduct social sciences more broadly and i want to push you a, a little bit, bit further on this than you have maybe gone in your book because for those of us who work in the global south inequality you know as i said has been a concern not just of now but for decades forever it's of course what so many of the anti colonial re- revolutions were about and there's this rich literature on inequality which is not part of the canon that you have highlighted in the book so i wondered whether you could widen your lens further you know not just turn the telescope around as you put it but actually widen it widen to not just thinking about injecting economics with sociology or challenging sociology to think grand again but also center a different canon a canon that is perhaps rooted in experiences of the glo- global south but not only and what i'm particularly thinking about is that so much of your critique of the nation state and the role that they uh role um uh role that is played in generating global inequalities the significance of empire right uh which uh, was also at the heart of um the latin american dependency theorists you know from the 50s 60s onwards um i'm thinking here of ralph prebish andre gunda frank fernando cardoso also walter rodney you know how, uh, you, you do talk about walter rodney a little bit but in a very different way uh, there's also samira may i mean accumulation on a world scale um 
I, you know, then in terms of capitalist growth and how it's been based on the enslavement of black people, CLR James, you know, Cedric Robinson, to me, it was really noticeable that most of these scholars were missing in your narrative. I mean, they might not have used the word inequality, but they were tackling some of the very processes you lay out. So isn't part of the issue for us in academia, not only to challenge academic silos, but also to decenter our canon, you know, democratize it, lay out an alternative canon. And that is crucial to the question of what is to be done. Uh, look, look, I completely agree with you. I mean, and um, uh, I, 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 I should have talked more, more about those people, and I'm definitely keen to do that more in the future. I have to recognise the limits of my knowledge and what I know about and what I, what I feel able to engage with. And I hope my book is, an, is a, a grand clear exercise which allows those conversations to bear fruit in the future. So um, I'm completely, uh, I, I recognise the, the importance of your point. That, and I think, you know, so this is really very much absolutely about you know, how we need to think about inequality as a global phenomenon, not centre the European story or the North American story or the kind of OECD story as kind of the, the focus of, of attention. And I think I do decenter that by critiquing those models and then, op- then recognising that, that there are these global flows. But clearly that conversation needs to go a lot further and um, look forward to you know, talking to you and other, other scholars about this further in the future. Great. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it opens up all sorts of possibilities, what you have done here for, for us. Um, Gurminder, over to you, your, your reflections on what is to be done. Thanks. I mean, I think, well, one of the things is sort of linking to this idea of sustainable nationalism, I guess. And But if we were to take the, you know, or if we were to recognise modernity as imperial modernity in the way in which you set out in the book or use the term colonial modernity, then that would also have to make a difference to how we conceptualise inequality in the present, both within the nation and globally, and think about how those two are linked. And so a sustainable nationalism, which seeks to address inequality within the nation, would also have to account for how the wealth that's available to that nation for redistribution nationally has historically been accumulated, and how it's wealth has actually led to poverty elsewhere. So wealth here and poverty there are not two separate phenomena. They're actually related through historical processes and how we account for that as a nation that's been on the positive, you know, on the end of accumulation as opposed to the end of, of dispossession. What, re- what relationship do we have? And I guess one way to sort of think about this is through what I'm calling for in terms of a reparatory social science where we think of social sciences committed to a project of repair, and that's the repair of European colonialism as it's left its uh, legacies of inequality materially, but also think about the way in which social sciences needs to take account of colonialism in its very categories in order to move from the nation to empire as the unit of analysis and to think about the colonial global as the condition, not the modern world and and so on. And just in terms of the sort of the COVID pandemic and vaccines, we can see the debates that are happening in Britain at the moment around, you know, should we give vaccines to children or send them abroad? And yet we've got enough vaccines to vaccinate the national population of four or five times over. So it's not actually a debate between whether we do this or do that. We could do both. And yet, how do we move beyond that nationalist sort of understanding and locate our responsibilities more broadly 
in an understanding of that global history. We seem to be moving in the other direction with the cut to the overseas development aid budget and all these sorts of things. We seem to be moving away from reckoning with our past and our responsibility for having created these global inequalities. And so I guess that's the question that I'm left with in terms of how do we, what do we do in relation to this? Thanks, Gominda. Mike, shall I hand over to Patrick and then maybe you can have the final final word. Yeah, Patrick. Thank you, Anta. Um, of course, we feel very modest when we don't do what is to be done uh, because we are not so good at that. Um, I'd like to push a little bit Mike on, on this issue because I think this last part of the book is both uh, extremely interesting and it took the risk of, of coming back to Rokan and all that, and that's great. And if I take my political scientist hat, uh, which I do have time, um, i like to push him a little bit. Point one, uh, the, the idea of umpires to state to umpires is is uh, extremely interesting and, and uh, help us to think in some lines, but don't stretch a good idea too far. In a way, the link between umpires and states works very well. Whether tomorrow we'll have umpires and not nation states anymore is very far from being there. We may have some forms of umpire, but you may also think that the political form that you may have may be extremely diverse. Remember, in the medieval time, we talk about hundreds of political forms uh, in some parts of the world, like Europe. And you may have in the future uh, you know, myriads of political forms, not just the umpire, the dominant one. And as far as we are, a number of people, and I'm part of them, think that we are moving to a different cycle of a, of a state, but not, and probably different from a nation state, but not the disappearance of a state. We see rather forms of a state connected from the nation with some capacity to act beyond the frontiers. So a different form of state rather than just moving back to the empire. And the other thing that we see in it as direct implications on what's to be done is also the strength, as I mentioned before, of political forms that are getting more and more resourceful at the, for instance, the original or the urban level. So the first thing, as I mentioned before, to keep my lines is that we can think about much more in terms of public policies, not just saying, of course, all the tax thing is, is essential, we agree with that, and some things have to be done nationally. But at those different scales, you can think about different forms of collective action on the one end and, and public policy on the other end. And for instance, as I mentioned before, some of the survey we're doing show that, and I'm referring to the work that was directed by Michel Lamont, Paul Pearson, Peter Hall in the Inequality Project in Canada. And one of the interesting things that a lot of people, they experience not just uh, uh, the, the gender of a class, whatever, but a sense of inequality and justice because they don't have access to the rights of services. So one thing that can be done, a number of things can be done at this local of urban element and access to education, transport, health, good air, uh, good you know, correct hospitals and correct services for children are a number of things that are not always measured in the number of inequality, but are essential in the way people resent and experience those inequality. And at that level, all those issues of discrimination, of uh, creation of symbolic frontiers, and, and uh, all those elements are very, very strong. So for me, there's a number of policies 
Because in the book, you tend to a little bit put aside the policy side, but not public policy to advise people, just a sociology of public policy. So a lot can be done, I would say, in a sort of access. So both at the macro in terms of taxation, but also at, at the at the more local level, which is not doesn't mean micro, but that's a, an important piece of what we done. And actually, in a number of cities all over the world, there's a very strong mobilization to increase this access to services for a number of people, improving their situation. So one of the big engine of reducing inequality is actually the rise of urban governance mechanism in a number of cities of the world. So that's something I'd like to, to push a little bit. The second, of course, is at the global level. And, uh, and again, we know the weakness, there is no global government in many ways. But on the other end, we see some norms, some standards starting to emerge at the transnational level, sometimes linked to private firms or private organization or NGOs. So there's clearly a number of things that can be designed and addressed at that transnational levels, more in terms of rules, norms, standards, uh, representations. And the last point I want to emphasize also representation and forms of measurement quality or quantity doesn't matter, but forms of systematic aggregation of some data, which are, are will be linked with the big data will be one element, but also accumulation of micro data that we can be able, and based on the experience of people. And that's where you point in the book, which I think it is extremely important, because historically, we know that the capacity to limit inequality has been re related to the capacity to represent some of those inequalities, to exclude some groups and some countries and some parts of the world, or from societies, migrants, or to include them in those in those representation and then to measure. So I think that's one thing that we, we need in order to be able to do something is not just to give voice to a much more number of people in this debate, but also to discuss collectively as the way we want to put forward. We cannot represent everything all the time that is supposed to change all the time. And they, really, they need a conversation on you know, what are the most important mechanisms and part of inequalities leading some other ones, because there are lots of inequalities, but some of them sometimes in some contexts may be more stable and important than some others. And I'm not saying there's a one universal way. We are in some context, at some period in time, some inequalities are explaining and leading to the other ones. And that's probably where we are not very good so far. And if we were able to push forward this idea, then we might be able to design forms of collective action or forms of public policy that will do something. And again, I'm not saying we can do everything at the same time at different level. By contrast, we need to think, as you said, time-wise, but also to develop forms of collective action at different scale in different contexts with different priorities. And again, I'm not an hyper-constructivist, everything is different all the time and changing all the time. Not at all. It's by contrast to recognize some meso-level structuration where we can do something. Thank you, Patrick. Mike, we have loads of questions coming in. So if you could take maybe just a couple of minutes uh, to respond and, and then I'm going to turn to some of the questions. Well, I have, in some ways, I haven't got much to say because, I mean, the, the, mm. what is to be done chapter was designed to throw ideas out there and provoke a conversation rather than give a kind of manifesto which had to be implemented point by point. So, and uh, I agree with, with, with both Gaminda and Patrick. I, I mean, I do, so uh, as, as I've emphasised, it, it's getting getting the balance right in this conversation. And, and the economists, one of the things I think was really, really important, and I do want to keep 
as a crucial part of this discussion is the fact that you know as whilst recognizing the capacities of the of nation states and national governments to make a difference say with vaccine policy or whatever we do have to recognize that the capacity of nation states has been massively eroded by the the, the rise of private wealth you know that is the, that is the big shift and you know the, 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 that that is that needs to be tackled at any scale it can be tackled and once we can get a better balance if to put it in those terms between private wealth and public wealth however however the public is construed urban or regional or national international then i think we, we are a better place all around to think about how to develop um policies across numerous domains that is why although it's kind of it's it's, it's, it's i'm not a policy person uh, i still do think the wealth tax debate is the most encouraging area in which there have been some concrete proposals which you know as i said before i don't believe in magic bullets but i think they will actually be important for all sorts of other things too including you know international relationships reparations also the kind of things that patrick was talking about and i also and indeed one of the reasons i was keen to patrick to be on this panel you know is he and i have had a long history as you know being interested in the city and you know part of the hollowing out of the nation states is so sure the rise of it, the return of empires but another thing going on is this is the significance of urban level governance and urban level processes and and there is some encouraging stories there about how as as you say patrick you can find ways in which inequality is being tackled at that scale uh, and so i absolutely agree i think i think this is uh, i think we shouldn't fixate upon national level um policy if that's as if that's the kind of the, necessarily even the main thing and that would help uh recognize the global process as well as the smaller scale one thanks mike uh, to all our audience um this is a vast book and um uh, there's so much that we haven't discussed yet on this panel but just to give you one example is that talking about cities there's an entire chapter on cities uh, in 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 the book anyway i'm going to um turn to some of the questions raised by our our, our attendees um and uh, maybe let me start with a couple that take us to the very back to the very premise of your book so there is a question um from Dereje Tarigan Woody um who asks you know about the book's title um why the return uh and he uh and the question is can you explain where inequality has been to this is tied i think to another question which is that by Wendy Lloyd who says that you know um it's you said that elites are very interested in in inequality um is it reasonable to interpret this as happening simply because they know that now inequality is a threat to them um so can you yeah can you tell us something about uh, about the return of inequality and 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 who is this returning to actually yeah sure i mean so let me be clear i think i think we've all underscored it in different kinds of way and we never you know we 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 are have not been living in an equal society it's not as if we were all equal 30 years ago and that's suddenly been transformed back into a more unequal society we you know every society has been modulating different kinds of inequality having said that i think um and and uh, it's true i am thinking predominantly of the of the oecd nations here the work of the economists in showing that economic inequality at least was modulated during the 20th century particularly after the first and second world war is an important issue it does make us think about how can we manage and organize societies with less gap between rich and poor and which 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 um 
which do do entail some some greater reciprocity and equal relationships. And so the return of inequality again is my is my engagement with economists. It's partly it's partly just endorsing the the, the argument which Piketty makes and this notion of the, the great convergence giving way to the great to the great return of inequality. But it's trying to deepen it by showing it's not just an economic process. It's it's bound up with a bigger transformation of society, which is intensifying other sort of other kinds of inequalities too. I think, I mean, behind that question, and I think it's an interesting issue which which we I regularly talk about with students. Um, we have a master's course at the LSC, as you all know, Alpha, on uh, you know inequality in social science. And one of the interesting things is, um, by talking about inequality, of course, you slightly, you slightly evade the issue about what is equality, or you 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 you're sort of saying. You know, egalitarianism as such, we're not sure about that, but you can be against inequality, against extreme inequality, without necessarily being a, a fully blown egalitarian. And I think that's quite an interesting space. There's someone like Piketty, I don't think, uh, and uh, this is true for many, many economists, would not be opposed to inequality as such. He had lots of reasons why, in his terms, um, some degree of inequality is, has positive functions, creates incentives or whatever. But I do think, um, Recognizing excessive extreme inequality allows people to, to join a common cause in which you can modulate against extreme levels of it, which I think politically is very, very important. Um, so that, so I hope that helps. I mean, the return of inequality is really to get us to think about historical parameters again and the historical forces which are back at work and to get us, to get us away from this complacency that we've left behind, um, empires, uh, elites, you know, dynastic relationships. In fact, you know, we are really seeing the renewal of those sorts of forces. Uh, sorry, and the second question, uh, Alpa. Uh, the second question was, I mean, you, you actually address it in your book, so maybe I should just point, uh, Wendy Lloyd, to, to, to the introduction to your book, which is that, you know, elites have become interested in inequality. Oh, yeah. Is it reasonable to interpret this as simply because they are now threatened by it, you know, and, and yes. basically, if I read you right, you say yes. Um, yes, yes but, but, but that's right. So why are elites interested in inequality? Um, it's because they can't, the, they can't predict the future. They've lost the sense about we know how to organise things so that the system will carry on. So I think it, it, it indicates a great loss of uncertainty by the governing classes about how to do stuff. So it's, I kind of talk about the, the decline of the rules of the game. The rules of the game are falling apart, the level of corporations and national state, nation states, and that's and inequality is a way of talking about that, which allows elites to recognise it. Thanks. I'm hoping to get two more sets of questions in. So one, I want to turn to a set of questions about how the book makes us think if we explore the issues from particular regions. So the first question is from um, Professor Tim Besley at the LSE. What lessons does the panel learn from the experience of Scandinavia about the issues that they're discussing? And he's raising this because at first time, of course, Scandinavian countries are a paragon when it comes to addressing inequalities. Uh, you know, so if so, is this the model that all nations should be following? I can definitely attempt an answer at that, but I'm not going to. I, I hand it over to you, to you Mike. Um, well, thank you, Tim. And in fact, I have quite a long discussion about that. Um, because, and I think, in fact, uh, Tim, I remember a talk you gave when you talk about the issue, but everyone looks at Denmark, and Denmark is the place which has the best answers. The problem is, these are very small nations, which just don't, you know, they're not typical. I mean, you can't, you can't generalise from, 
what Norway does or Denmark does and just, and uh, extrapolate to the rest of the world. There's a few million, I mean, and let, me, let me be clear, I mean, I love those countries dearly and have many colleagues working in those countries. Uh, but, you know, they, 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 as a model for how to deal with inequality, generally, I mean, they, they have limits because they're, they're particular kind of state structures. And also, as indeed many Scandinavian um, social scientists have shown recently, there's interesting countries too. I mean, part, this is partly Gimindo's point about this, the importance of you know, historical forces. Although they score very well in terms of economic inequality, relatively, relatively, income inequality, in terms of their wealth inequality, they're often um, quite high. And, and uh, the work of uh, Noah Weikers at the Institute has been interesting in that. So I, th- actually think, I actually wanted to get away a bit from these good countries. We can just copy those and... and then we'll have answers because I think that's that is it, it's it doesn't really give us a the, the the boldness which we need to tackle these questions. Thanks, Mike. Um, a couple of questions. Um, thinking about what you said from the Indian context, Ashok Kumar Megwal asks, um, how much would your study and analysis be relevant to India? As here, class hegemony is not strong enough, as caste hegemony, which is very strong and prevalent, secretly hidden and even denied. Um, and that's related to another question from Leela Shri Godara, um, who is asking about um, social and economic inequalities in India um, being you know, intrinsically related uh, so how, you know, and, 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 and government attempts to address this through affirmative action quotas um, for, uh, for disadvantaged people. Does the book contain any content or explaining such a, a efforts or thinking about these efforts in relations to inequality? Well, I mean, Alpha, you're the expert. You're the expert on India, not me. I mean, so not, not really. And I don't claim to be an expert on, on in India except that I do draw upon the work of economists such as Milanovic and, and indeed the World Inequality Lab to make the point that those Asian countries have driven the global shift towards inequality. So both India and China have become massively more unequal in, in recent decades. They've become much more prosperous countries, but also much more unequal countries. And the dynamics in those countries are therefore you know, very significant for world inequality generally, given the very large population size of those countries. So, um, you know, going back to what your earlier comment, Alp, about having these bigger conversations, I absolutely think understanding more what's going on in those parts of the world is crucial for this debate. Thanks, Mike. Um, I have a, so I'd, I'd like to turn the discussion to some questions about m- measurement. And um, I have a question from Murray. Lieberbrandt, um, who is from the ex- African Center for Excellence of Excellence for Inequality Research, who's asking um, about um, how we measure. So global inequality is measured by pooling all of the available national data sets uh, and analyzing the world, you know, as kind of one country. So this too is, he says, is a highly problematic in many ways, as especially there is such a weakness in global governance and the likelihood of agreed global action to act on these inequalities. So doesn't recognizing the limitations of national responses surface the weakness of global institutions and global collective responses? Well, thank you, Maui. We were talking about this last week, I think. Um, yes, look, I mean, absolutely. And again, the work of Milanovic and the World Inequality Lab is really, really important in the notion of thinking about inequality on the global scale and pooling together different national data sets 
is much better than we had before. So it does allow us to think about um, global shifts. And I think all the debate about the elephant graph and what that means for understanding the big dynamics is a crucial platform to build upon. But of course, you know, as, as the fact we were discussing last week, that the nature of official data in many African countries is, you know, is, is limited. And I think developing ways of understanding those kinds of, um, questions is absolutely fundamental. I mean, I'm involved in a project with colleagues at the LSE, uh, Andy Summers and Aaron Advani, uh, who is an economist at Warwick. Well, for instance, we're thinking about how to look at, um, taxpayer, non-domicile taxpayers and looking at the kind of nations in the world they have links with. So I think there are ways in which we can elaborate measurement tools which go beyond, you know, trying to, trying to sum up, um, inequality within your country and recognize the global flows. Uh, and the, I'm sure examples like this can be found in different parts of the world. They will involve surely qualitative and quantitative methods. Um, big data, you know, I, I talk a little bit about the use of big data and, and clearly taxation data has been used very profitably by economists. So I think we, we are in a very, um, a time where we can be quite ambitious about using new measurement tools to our advantage if, we, if we're careful. Thanks. Um, I think we probably have space for one last question, uh, and I'll use that question as an opening for uh, a wider discussion. Anything anybody would like to say on the panel in this last uh, in this last section? Um, uh, I, so that's a question um, from. Oof, I've just lost it here. Hang on, from Lawrence Barfoot, who who's a student, a, a postgraduate sociology student from Warwick University, and um, he is raising the question of um, the fact that you know you we've all talked about Gurminda. He says you you talked about doing sociology differently. So um, and he asks, you know, how would each of you like to see students of sociology take the discipline forward so let me put the question to to, to the whole panel uh, as a way of uh, closing off the discussion and any other final thoughts that you'd like to um, like to uh, like to end on how would you like to see um, students take what what you've uh, what you've brought out um, in in your book, Mike, uh, Gurminder, in your comments, Patrick, in your comments, how would you like to see students take 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 the take forward um, what the, the discussion we've opened out here? Thank you. Um, so, so I'm a great fan of um, sociology as a topic based issue based subject. Um, that is to say, you take topics like inequality is an obvious one, but there's, there's other ones too. And you think about how to assemble the methods and the theory which allows you to address that topic. Um, I mean, I, I, I do have some links to kind of canonical thinkers, but I think I'm, I'm in, I'm in favor of us having an open approach to sociology, which doesn't fixate necessarily on there being a right way and a wrong way. So as, as I've, as we've been emphasizing, I strongly believe in mixed methods, quantitative and qualitative. It doesn't say there's one theoretical perspective, which is important, which tries to use different theories to uh, tease out uh, crucial issues and which is really addressing the, the, the fundamental challenges of our time. My, my, my background was in history. My, my training was in history. The reason I, be, I became interested in sociology was in a sense to give a historical approach to contemporary life and understand the seriousness of our time. And we are in a world of major crises, ma major challenges. 
So I, I, I'm, I think sociology is best when it is addressing the big issues which confront us, and we should not be too insular and too kind of, uh, what's the word, you know, stuck in orthodoxies about how we should do sociology because it goes back to a particular canonical tradition. So that's, that's my reflection. Thank you. Gominda? Well, I mean, funnily enough, my background was also in history. And I think this idea of having a historically informed social science is absolutely crucial. And it's necessary for how we move forward in particular sorts of ways. And I think, you know, that the, the, the comments that Mike opened up with in terms of what he's doing as a sociologist in order to make the categories of economists much more expansive and inclusive of these historical trajectories and these other ways also of thinking about the world. I think that's central to the revitalization of the social sciences by thinking that, you know, I mean, generally we work with this idea of modernity being an unfinished project in the way that Habermas has sort of set it out. And what that implies within it is that somehow modernity encapsulates ideas of progress. And yet, as we've talked already, that modernity was very uneven for different parts of the world. And if we think about it in terms of it being a form of imperial or colonial modernity, then we can recognize the unevenness of modern processes and think about how we might wish to um, address those in the present by taking that history into account. So again, you know, for me, it would be about shifting from the nation to the empire as the unit of analysis of social science. It would be thinking about the colonial global rather than the modern world. And it would be about having social sciences committed to some sort of project of repair that would address the, the inequalities of the past in terms of how they're playing out in the present. Thank you, Gominda. Patrick. Thank you. Well, number one, inequalities as one of the centre to rebuild sociology is clearly book project, and, and I would support that very much. Before saying how to do that, I would emphasise that we are not entirely sure there's a risk for sociology to become irrelevant and, and becoming marginal. And this risk is expressed in different ways. After all, sociology was invented to make sense of the European a nation state society, industrial society of the 19th century. And a number of scholars, remember John Murray, the UK scholars are very good at that, uh, were starting to think about, you know, beyond the classic understanding of sociology, how, how we have to reinvent sociology in connection to the society of today, but society with all the limits of what we expressed before. And maybe the classic understanding of society doesn't make sense anymore. So there's a real issue of understanding what we have around the world of today and the sort of disciplines that we have to put aside. It might also be irrelevant, and that's my worry when I teach, because on the one end, all the big data, and, and Mike emphasised this point in his book very, very clearly, which the, the wealth of data coming in, which is massive, and we may not be always aware or able to use some of that, and on the other end, the risk of being super constructivist and going to all the difference of everything changing all the time, where we say nothing and we don't go very far away in trying to explain anything. So it's not entirely sure for these two reasons that will still be here uh, as or that sociology will be a discipline in the classic sense in, in 40 years' time. For the time being, though, as an optimist, the first thing I want to emphasize for me is always to emphasize forms of comparison. Comparison over time time, comparison over different geographic entity, and comparison over scale. 
And I think what we're trying to do, both Mike and a number of us on Gominda, is trying to articulate forms of understanding and developing both surveys, because sociology is about surveys, and research, empirical research, and conceptual, able to deal with this different scale in relation to each other and those different time perspective and understanding the struggle around those, those different elements. So that's the way I would put it, really emphasize always the empirical research and the conceptualization, also linking those different, you know, trying to understand the way bits of societies are reorganized with different time and scale perspective. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, well, uh, one of the things that uh, for me, Mike's book has really highlighted is the significance for us to be talking to each other much more around, you know, uh, across disciplines. And this is not just in order to, you know, have a mixed method methods approach, but in in order to think about, you know, the limits of our frameworks and the limits in, in this instance of measurement based approaches and bringing in processes, you know, like social thinking about long term historical processes which a methods based approach might you know which 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 a measurement based approach might not be able to highlight in the same way so how do we bring in you know long term historical change uh, and its impact into our thinking uh, uh, about inequalities and also one of the things i really want to highlight that mike's book points out is the role of social movements you know in 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 bringing to light a lot of the issues around inequality that we we've been discussing. So as a student, um, I would really encourage you to be uh, taking your discipline forward by also keeping a very active engagement with different social movements that are around us right now. Um, okay, so um, thank you so much uh, for these uh, great questions from the audience for coming to coming to the discussion. Uh, and also to our wonderful panelists, Gurminda Bamra, Patrick Legale, and above all, thanks to Mike for this uh, fantastic book. I recommend everybody goes out and gets it and reads it right now. Um, it's a call to action. It's a call for us to really push forward um, the study of inequalities uh, and our approach to inequalities. And of course, I thank everybody at LSE events who's behind the scenes who you can't see right now uh, uh, in putting the show together. So thank you, everybody at LSE events and LSE Inequalities Institute, too. Uh, with that, I end this session. Thank you. <laughs>